Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb. And Brian, I think magic is okay. Magic is good. Solidly good this week. I have spent this week playing probably the most magic I've played in a very, very long time and doing so pretty happily, enjoying myself, having a good time, not so much forced into the game by content creation and just like, oh, I kind of just want to play this matchup and figure out a nice sideboard plan. And it, it all feels very good right now. I I sort of feel the same way. And I I won't do this a lot, but I, I've played like a little bit of limited. I play a little bit of double masters and a little bit of almond get remastered drafting, not sealed sealed still seems atrocious, but whatever. And that's been good. Nice little palate cleanser. And I've been looking into modern a decent amount. I actually think that modern is probably my favorite format right now, which is weird because like two years ago, I just despised the format. So that's in a good place. And then, you know, like Pioneer's fine. Standard's kind of okay. Historic. One big problem, at least. But Interesting. I would agree with that assessment, and I don't know if we're going to get into that now or if we want to save that till later. Later, but, later. Okay, okay. I'll save my piece then. We're good. Okay. Uh, yeah, we can talk about standard first because there's some Red Bull tournaments going on, some Star City tournaments going down. Uh, we talked about Sultai last week, and I, I don't know if this this is good or bad for us, but like... The top eight of the Star City thing is six Sultai decks. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how Sultai as it existed was a bad deck for numerous different reasons. If you didn't listen to the episode, definitely go do that because I don't even think it necessarily tracks to just Sultai. You know, I think that there's just some good valuable lessons there in general. But uh, it does make me happy that these, these Sultai decks that did well are not the ones that we were talking about last week. Yeah, if you watched the tournament, and I did because I covered it, it very much validated everything we were saying. I can't tell you how many games I saw where Casualties of War was irrelevant and people weren't leveraging Thought Erasure to any kind of benefit. And it was very clear the deck had no plan, wasn't snowballing games effectively, except the list that did very, very well, which were rebuilds. They were not the decks that we had seen in the weeks prior. And granted, there were some like old school looking Sultai decks floating around the top eight as well. But the decks which ultimately dominated the tournament, uh, the, the deck in the hands of the winner, Alexander Gordon Brown, and the second place deck played by Ishibashi were just not default Sultai builds whatsoever. And watching the games play out, I was very pleased with our episode because it just seemed like point after point, there was just a living, breathing example of exactly what we were talking about, how the old versions were flawed and how these new versions really stepped up and did something different. Well, <laughs> both the first and second place decks have four, four copies of Thought Erasure. Yeah. So here's what's changed, though. The, the issue I had with Thought Erasure was that you would Thought Erasure and you take random spell and then you had a bunch of reactive stuff like casualties of war or eliminates or whatever spot removal may be. And they'd play 
whatever their end game was, be it Uro or Hydroid Crisis or Nissa, and the thought erasure you played on turns two, three, and four were completely irrelevant because that card outclassed you. In the first and second place list, there is a very important element backing up those thought erasures that's counter magic. And so now these threats, which have the capability of just snowballing a game there on their own, are effectively answered. Now, granted, Hydroid Crisis still has some problems where it draws a bunch of cards, but keeping the body off the battlefield is a very big deal. And in fact, we saw that play come up a lot where it was just counter your Hydroid Crisis or even Ether Gust your Hydroid Crisis. And that mattered enough to let the snowball happen in the opposite direction because the advantage exchange there is not denial of a threat. It's denial of a threat at positive mana. So all these decks were effectively using Thought Erasures to set up turns where they could present something like an uncontested Nissa or Nissa with negate backup. And there was an actual game plan being executed via these Thought Erasures. The best illustration I can give you of this, if you have time, it's worth watching this match. Go watch. I think it's round three. And it's Alexander Gordon Brown who eventually goes on to win the tournament against Ari Lax. And Ari is playing like an old school, old school build of Sultai Ramp, Casualties of War, basically the exact deck that we were saying was pretty bad after last week. And Ari is playing, I think, game two and has just a banger of a start. It's just Thought Erasure, take your thing. Thought Erasure, take your thing. In super solid position. And then the game plays out like 10 more turns and about seven or eight turns into that, you're like, oh, actually, Ari never had a chance in this game (laughs) because all of these advantages are going to be leveraged later on. So all that setup work, and it was legitimately perfect setup. It was like, thought erasure, take your best thing. Thought erasure, take your best thing. Here's my Nissa. Alexander Gordon Brown was able to play back from all of that. And Ari was sitting there with like a casualties of war, just rotting in hand, doing nothing. It. And it was such a good illustration of the differences between the two decks. And as soon as that match was over, Majors and I went and did like our after round recap and basically went card by card. And I was like, I'm pretty sure this guy broke it and it's just going to run over the tournament. And he did. He crushed all time mirrors all day. Yeah, four copies of Ether Gust, uh, three Shark Typhoons, a Disdainful Stroke, two Mystical Disputes, two Negates. So like very heavily pointed towards beating mirror matches, uh, but still maintaining fourness of four crisis also has brazen borrower, which I'm not sure how good that actually is. looked great. Uh, it it okay. really did. Like it was just again about leveraging the mana advantage. So you'd set up these very unique turns and just like able to hold up mystical dispute negate, but not be punished for it. Cause you're still able to advance a game plan via brazen borrower shark typhoon. It was, it was just such a well-built deck and I was so impressed watching it round after round. Yeah, I mean, this is this is very Flash-esque, right? At least once the yep. Flash decks incorporated some amount of Nisses and Krasises. Like, uh, Alexander has Typhoon and Brazen Borrower to go with Counterspells, so it's not like he's ever really punished for sitting on Counterspells on a key turn or anything. Always has things to do with his mana and is still just backing it up with the best cards. Yeah, and so there's obviously going to have to be a cost in all of that, right? And the cost is... Alexander just gets ranched by aggro decks in game one. But you go and think about the context of standard going into this tournament. All anyone is talking about is Sultai Ramp. And then you actually look at the tournament. 37% of the field plays Sultai Ramp. It puts up a 60% win percentage. So very clearly crushing everything else. And then comprises 75% of the top eight. So it's just nailing the winner's game 
the winner's metagame? Absolutely. Like just getting that best matchup all day long and still giving yourself a chance in games two and three against these more aggressive decks. And in fact, we saw Alexander win a bunch of game ones against things like is it aggro? So it wasn't like the door was just closed on his chances. Just certainly playing those matches as an underdog, but every single decision in the main deck very clearly geared towards beating the mirror, even something like eat to extinction as your only removal spell. It's like, well, that's the kill Nissa. So just over and over emphasizing this very important part. Yeah. And if, if you get on further from uh, the top eight into the top 16, there's a decent amount of salt ice still. And then the creature decks are not even necessarily decks that you want to load up on spot removal against like the adventures decks. Obviously you want to kill Edgewall innkeeper if you can, Right. But there's there's nothing like mono red or mono black where you know you just need to kill threat after threat after threat, and I would imagine that even against adventures or sacrifice, you can still just do Nissa Hydra Crisis st- stuff and just be fine. You know, not necessarily need all the spot removal. So it yeah. it it just seems like a very very good plan. Yeah. And yeah, with five counter spells, ether gusts, all that stuff, it just seems like he's set up to dominate the mirror match. Yeah, a, a little bit about the aggro decks that did show up. It, the best performing one was probably Mardu Winota. And then you think about the cards that Alexander had access to. Well, he actually still has a bunch of really good cards against that deck. Like you're still effectively challenging Winota both on the stack and on the battlefield with Brazen Borrower, uh, Ether Gust. So plenty of ways to delay that really explosive turn. And you can beat their average turns with just the cards in your deck. Like you don't need to actually sweep them. You can just race them if they don't have access to Winota. And yeah, Ale- Alexander did that. Yeah, you're just trying to buy time until you can go over the top, right? Yep. And the the other trend within the Saltai decks is to just become more of like a blue-black control deck with Uro, which I think is fine. It definitely is is kind of in step with what we were saying last week, but it really misses the point of having a powerful, proactive game plan. So I like basically doing both like what Alexander did. Yeah. It seems like he found the sweet spot with the only downside. If you were comparing say his list to the second place list from Ishibashi, I would assume Ishibashi is far better against more traditional aggressive decks. If there was a lot of mono red, mono black, mono green is another one I'll mention. I think Ishibashi actually did a good job of playing against a broader field, like against the old, 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 Soltai lists, I believe Ishibashi still found a way to be favored against them. Against Alexander Gordon Brown, not so much because he took it to an even further principle, but he also held up a lot of equity against things like mono green, mono red. They just weren't in this tournament though. So, right. you know, this tournament breaks a little bit differently and the field looks a little bit differently as I would expect it would go into this week. Maybe we spend more time talking about Ishibashi's list, but as the tournament stood, it was just a standout performance by Alexander Gordon Brown. Absolutely. And then for the Red Bull tournament, a little bit different. Uh, three copies of Sultai in the top eight. And the top three decks were Is It Aggro, Boros Cycling, and Mono Black Aggro. So here we see a trend of the aggro decks actually taking advantage of the mediocrity of Sultai. Yeah. And an interesting approach to doing so, I think all three of these decks have some pretty big flaws, honestly. And I don't know that any of them can actually step up and claim 
a huge percentage of the metagame, but in scenarios where nobody whatsoever is prepared for them and the Sultai ramp decks are getting more and more inbred to account for other Sultai decks, they steal a tournament every now and then. And I think that's what we saw. Although is it aggro's performance probably bears some more discussion because not only is it the winner here, uh, it placed a member into the top eight of the star city tournament. There was some very nice returns for win percentages uh, across these two tournaments for the Is It Aggro decks across very, very small representation and sample sizes. So I think people are very interested in our opinion of Is It Aggro if we see it as a potential challenger to Sultai Ramp, if this was just a flash in the pan, where do you stand on this deck? Well, when when this deck was kind of coming up, I made the point that they were kind of hedging a little bit too much. They were like, playing some aggressive elements, but also trying to play longer games. And I didn't think that trying to play longer games was really beneficial with a deck like this. And uh, the winning deck list from the Red Bull tournament goes so far as to include Riddle Form and uh, Samut Sprint, Four Unsummons, and really lean into that aggressiveness, which I really like. I agree. And the top eight list from the Star City did the same thing. It was a riddle form Samet Sprint setup, uh, maybe even more aggressive than this build, giving up on things like Spectral Sailor and the Royal Scions. So I agree with you that they started to find their role. And the role is we don't have quite the aggression of Mono Red, but we do have that Ether Gust on a key turn. When you go to slam that Nissa, we have just that one hurdle you have to go through, or we have the Unsummon for your Hydrate Crisis. We can continue to push damage. And that's going to be good enough in a lot of instances. And watching the games play out, I think that was occasionally true. But I can't shake the feeling of this being a regression to the way we used to play Magic. And what I mean by that is we kind of put some lands in our deck and we hoped we drew them in a reasonable distribution with our spells and a bunch of games we're going to lose, but that's just the way Magic goes and we accept it and we write it off to variants. Well, now you just get to play 28 lands in Euro, and you don't ever have to go through that because your catch-up mechanisms are so good that you get to participate in every game. So one of the things I remarked when I was writing about this deck was if I am consenting to this, I guess gamble is how I would term it. If I am consenting to the old school mana gamble that is inherent in the game of Magic, then I have to ask my deck, give me some return for that. I want some clear positioning edge that I can point to where I say, yes, this is worth it because... This deck just can't account for any of the things I'm doing. I don't think that's true with Is It Aggro. I think Sultai has completely reasonable game plans against you. Even if you want to tell me you're favored, I won't fight the point. I don't know if I buy it. But if you are, you're favored by small margins. This is not a slam dunk matchup in Is It Aggro's favor. I, I saw it play out too many times, and I know it's close. And I think maybe, again, there was a point where against the old Sultai lists that were like tons of spot removal. Yeah, it seems awesome to be able to board into four miscasts in post-board games and then you just kill them on mana efficiency and they never answer any of your threats. That's that's a real plan. But I don't think that is what these Sultai decks are going to be about anymore. I think they're going to be more about the snowball and the mana curves are going to get a little lower. Things like Brazen Borrower, Shark Typhoon are solid plans against you. Right. And that's what I was going to say too, is like these lists actually look like they would be very good at exploiting last week's Sultai. Right. And, and I did. think that, yeah, exactly. I think there's a way to exploit this week's Sultai, certainly, because their light on removal have 
more stack interaction, stuff like that. And there's there's probably a good way to beat them. Maybe not with Is it, but with any other like traditional aggro deck, I assume that you would have a good time. Yeah. So Cedric Phillips was very upset that after we did our review of Standard last week, we had almost no mention of mono green aggro. So Cedric, I will now make it up to you by saying this seems like an incredible week for mono green aggro and probably a very strong choice going into this weekend's tournaments. And I mean, it has been a good choice for him, right? Like he's just crushing the top of the ladder. Right. But that's like Cedric stuff. Like he just takes a bunch of stupid creatures and then wins games. Most people won't win. And that's what he does in every format. So it's like when, you know, Sandy Dog or Aaron Barish win with mono red. You're like, yeah, that's what they do. We're used to that. So Cedric winning with dumb creatures, not surprised. But I think he's actually right this time and has a really good choice on his hands. Well, this is this is broken clock, right? Because Mm -hmm. two weeks ago, his deck wouldn't have been good. And now he's like, well, I've been telling y'all for two weeks that this deck is good. And it's like, well, yeah, it finally is now, but. <laughs> right. Uh, like, and, yeah, give him his win. He worked hard for it. He's been uh, grinding out those games on the top of the ladder. I don't think he's claimed that number one spot yet, though. So it's you know. it's tough. You got you to gotta put in a ton of volume and he's a busy A lot dude. of games. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I should also mention that Willie Adel is basically the Cedric Phillips of Magic Online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crushed a challenge event with mono green as well and actually that challenge was lousy with mono green just four copies uh in the top eight and that's kind of against the old sultai decks so i mean maybe there is something there people people are reporting some really strong numbers against sultai keyword big is is fairly relevant right uh one one other thing is that uh whirlwind denial was in the sideboard of the the red bull is a deck and I don't necessarily like it there, but I do feel like that is an underplayed card at the moment just because of crisis. Yeah, I, I think in the mirror actually is where I'd be much fonder yeah. of that card because as converted mana costs creep up, there's more and more space for a three mana counter spell to be just as impactful as a two mana counter spell. Uh, Negate was a all-star this weekend. It feels like you might be able to get away with some whirlwind denial. It really depends how people are going to shift and you you have to read the field and understand if you can afford to go down that three mana route or if they're going to try and challenge you in the early game now. Because Sultai could do that too. It could move towards a more aggressive focus build. So we'll have to see where they fall on the spectrum coming into this weekend. Yeah, I mean, there's things like Thought Erasure that let you know that your opponent has it. There are things like Mystical Dispute that make three mana counterspells are just like clunky counterspells in general right. a little awkward so maybe you have to like back it up with your own mystical disputes and then there are the things like the brazen borrowers which might just pressure you to use the denial on turn three and that's that's fine you know if you're just going to use if you're going to lose to the borrower anyway at yep. least then you have an additional counterspell for it or whatever but then it takes away the ability to actually get rid of both parts of the crisis so I'll say this, if you're playing like an SCG or a Red Bull tournament and you're playing with open deck lists, put one in your sideboard. I am positive it's worth playing one to at least give your opponent that fear where they might have to play a Whirlwind Denial around Whirlwind Denial in a certain spot. Oh, yeah. Well, I, and if nothing else, I mean, they're just not going to play around it, right? Sure. Because it's only one copy. It's possible that you see the name of the card and don't know what it does. <laughs> that is possible. Although at this point, I think you should be wise to it. Uh, it, you know, it's seen some spot play during its time in Standard. I think in the last format, we saw some whirlwind denials for a minute. But uh, yeah, it was a weird weekend for it to pop up, but a, a very good one for sure. No, absolutely. So uh, next week, maybe maybe mono green aggro is what you're saying? Looks good to me right now. It It really depends how far people go down this road, how 
continually inbred this metagame can get before Sultai kind of collapses under the weight of itself. I don't think we're there yet. And to be honest, I'm not sure it's even something that can actually happen because your card quality, as we've said throughout, is just too, too high. Now you start trimming Nissa's, Uro's, Hydroid, Krasis's, then maybe you're getting to a place where like you're actually just reliant on your metagame read to have success and you're not going to get bailed out by those cards over and over. So if that happens, then I believe you could force Sultai to a pretty losing position. But there's a lot of ground to cover, a lot of catch up to play to beat those three cards in concert with each other. Word. Okay. I did do my homework for, for last week. I did play a decent amount of standard with different versions of, uh, you know, Simic being more proactive, stuff like that. I found some stuff that I like, but nothing that I think is really a slam dunk. So if I were going back to the drawing board, I would probably just try Alexander's deck before I tried any more Simic stuff. Because it seems like he accomplished a lot of what I wanted to do while also still maintaining the black element. And right, yeah, just... Maybe, maybe the thought erasures are bad. Maybe they're not. I don't know. And maybe you, you could get a better sideboard plan against aggro than what he has. But it it's it seems tough because it's like you get uh, four extinction events and all the spot removal and stuff. And it seems like you're going to be in a much better spot than, you know, playing whatever crap I had, like Gargaroth and Voracious Hydra and stuff like that. So, Yeah, I like those cards a lot, but it's hard to see where they fit. Uh, and the hierarchy of goals for what these games are about right now. Yep. But my deck might be better against mono green, I guess. And I did, I did have a pretty good track record of like playing the deck that Cedric lost to in tournaments. So maybe I should just keep that going. Hmm. Not a bad idea. He was always like, Oh, you know, I I can never beat teachings or whatever, but no one plays teachings. And then I would be there and be like, hi. So is this worth you grinding to the top of the ladder just so you could haunt him as he goes for his number one? Just always be there. Like watch, watch his stream whenever he queues up, just immediately hop in. If if I did, I would have to change my screen name again. Because mm. my, my arena screen name right now is just Jerry T. And I have, I have an alt account that I use for like the Mythic Invitational for testing purposes or whatever, but I don't have uh, new cards on it, I'm sure, so... Yeah, this isn't a magic online scenario where you have 40 to 50 accounts that you could just use to troll Cedric repeatedly. Yeah, I it, it would be interesting if it was just me just like chilling and like queue sniping him. But I think <laughs> I think it would be better if it just builds this mystery where he loses to the same person like five times in a row. And he's just like, what is going on? Who is this person? You know, like I want that to kind of drive him. Yeah, yeah, I like this. Yeah. So good plan. A lot of setup for what is ultimately a practical joke, but, you know. The best jokes often involve the hardest road to go down. Yeah, I I don't have time for that, but just know, Cedric, that I could do it if I wanted to. I like that style of calling your shot. You just tell me, no, I could (laughs) if I wanted to. And I I hope that he just, like, loses to a person three times in a row or something. and He He just starts thinking. thinking Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Put the fear in him. Just best of both worlds. Nice. Anyway. Uh, historic. We have Amonkhet remastered. uh, Fairly impactful set overall, especially since they took some (laughs) very deep liberties and just added cards to the set at random, it seems like. It feels Uh, like we cheated to squeeze an an impactful set out of this one. Well, there there was still like some good stuff and you get uh, a good limited format out of it. And obviously there there are a bunch of bangers uh, among the rares, but they're still like you know, sensor and 
I guess a, a braid is a fake card, but like, you know, that card does things. There's the desert stuff that impact the feel of the dead decks because you give these decks more lands with different names and more lands that do things. Uh, like Scavenger Grounds, I think, is a pretty big one where it's like, oh, okay, like now this deck has access to this and like you don't have to necessarily play Bajuka Bog or whatever. I think that those things are impactful, but certainly the the rares and the mythics and the stuff that just got added on top of what was actually in Amaket are the most impactful. Yeah. Yeah, you put together a nice little list of the, the most impactful stuff you found. Do you want to start our discussion there? Pact of Negation. It's hard to say what this actually does because there's not like Gristlebrand uh, type stuff yet, at least. Uh, but it's bad news. Thoughtseize, that's a huge one. And Slam I guess, dunk. yeah, I guess the rationale is like, well, if we're moving towards Pioneer, we need to get these cards in here somehow. And they were part of the, the Masterpiece series. So like adding those two are, is fine, right? But like Collecting Company, how did that get in there? I don't know. I don't know what the qualifier was there. I guess I'm happy with it. I'm enjoying Historic a lot. We'll talk more about that when we get to talking about the decks and Collected Company has been a part of that. So I don't know how we got to this point where that's what we needed to add, but I guess good call. Wasn't wasn't Collected Company largely deemed a mistake and something that should not have happened? And now it's just like, oh, this is a classic part of magic and this is what we want historic to be about. Like when did that narrative change? I think it was a mistake in the standard context and has been a actual boon everywhere else because of what it incentivizes. Like standard was only about that one thing, like battlefields and creature-based combat. So obviously you should be playing collected company when that's the only thing you can conceivably do in that format. When the formats are broad and there's all these different goals, be it you know, traditional combo or control, I think it's an important tool to incentivize you to just be like, I play a bunch of dumb creatures because otherwise that's just not a realistic plan. Like you can't do things like that anymore. And this enables, you know, 30 creature strategies and makes you look pretty smart for playing them. Okay. So I have to update my mental model on this card. Like this, this is a beloved card now. I think so. I think, I think it is more beloved than hated at this point. That is my guess for Collected Company. And this comes from literally the person who has been burned by Collected Company more than anyone else on the planet. I promise you. I, I have the stats. I have felt the burns. And still, I'm happy Collected Company is here. It has cost you tens of thousands of dollars. I'll give you that. Yes. I don't think your stats have the most misses, but I No, do- I checked. I check. I, no, 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 no. I, I believe that you have the highest percentage. Thank you. Okay. Of, of misses. I see where you're going. Yeah. So I don't think you've been burned the most, right? Because it's happened to you what thirty times or something? Maybe. More. Yeah. You know, I'm not big on those gameplay numbers, but the percentage of times it has betrayed me is is the highest. Yes. Dude, I've 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 seen I've seen that Pro Tour coverage. I've seen you play local tournaments with like banned spirits when that came out in modern and you just put like a, a mausoleum wanderer off it and Got nothing him. else and floor mana flash mausoleum wanderer beat that. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've, and I don't think I've ever seen you hit certainly not two three mana creatures. That's just never happened. So I, I have said that I am very blessed in a lot of aspects of my life. And if the one thing that is going to eternally curse me is poor collected company luck, I am willing to accept that. But you can't you can't get unstuck by not playing it, you know? That's true. That's true. Trying to get back to even. 
you just got to cast that card like another thousand times. That That is your lot in life. I'm sorry. Oh, good Lord. At least the deck is good this time around. Uh, Anger of the Gods. I think that was that a masterpiece. I think it was. No, no, no. I don't think so. Also just made up. Okay. I don't know. I, okay. That's a bad road for me to go down and try and claiming that I know all the masterpieces that were in Amonkhet. I certainly can't do that. So maybe it was. Who knows? Yeah, I, I could tell you a lot of the masterpieces that were in Zendikar, but the Amonkhet ones I, I didn't like because you could never tell what they were. Yeah, they were just arbitrarily chosen. And then when you finally saw them, you still didn't know what card it was. Yeah, that's basically what I'm talking about. So it's like I didn't go too deep down that rabbit hole of like, you know, I really want to acquire this one or even trying to figure out like which ones of them were in the set or whatever. So there was uh, a moment where the Amonkhet invocations inspired me to try and put together the most like incomprehensible legacy deck I could possibly get, like just weird variants that people aren't accustomed to seeing just to prove how far afield we had gone with variants. And then this was like four years ago before just every card had 50 variants. So now I, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that goal. Well, I saw the secret layer void slime and I'm just like, oh no, this is, this is going to be bad. Like <laughs> these, these cards just look fake. And I know that someone is going to cast them against me in probably not the near future, but the future, hopefully. And I'm just going to be like, where, where'd this come from? Right. Here's my thing about the secret layer stuff. I wrote this in, I did a fact or fiction over on star city this week. I read it. I, wrote, I okay. voted for you and you were winning. Thank you for that vote. I take that very seriously. And uh, everyone knows we only get paid if we win the factor fiction. So it's a huge gamble every time you you write, but I'm it's hoping true. to get paid this time. It's true. But my point was, you and I actually talked a little bit about this. I've been watching a lot of documentaries lately. And one of the documentaries I watched was about comic books back in the era when I was really into comic right. books, which was the 90s. Hold on, hold on. Do- docu- documentary? Documentary. Not- not documentary? I don't I don't know. Is there a difference? Wait, what are you saying? Documentary. Documentary. You see the difference? Yeah. I, I use a different vowel sound. Well, which one's right? I don't know. I thought mine was right, but I could be wrong. Anyway, uh yeah, I, you're you're watching some stuff about like image and right. the the secret origin of comics by the dude who created Walking Dead, right? Yeah. And uh, check out the one on Wonder Woman, if you don't know that story. Oh, that's, my God. That's an interesting one. I did not I, know any of that. I did not know any of that either. And I it, it blew my mind. Like, I, I had to text you and because you got me started on that path. Right. So I texted you and I'm just like, whoa, what is this? Like, I could have never guessed this, right? And then you're just like, oh, I haven't even seen it yet. And I'm just like, damn it. I want to talk about this. Yeah, I caught it and it was wild. And I, I won't spoil it. Everyone I recommend check out is The Secret History of Comics by Robert Kirkman. And I just found them on YouTube uh, pretty readily available. I don't know if that's legal or not, but whatever. That's not what we're here for. Anyway, checking all this stuff. Lots of documentaries, as Jerry says. <laughs> and thinking about my old hobbies, which were comic books and sports card collecting. And both of these hobbies had a period in the 90s where they like discovered the variant printing. And they went so hard into it. Just every pack of baseball cards was loaded with all these different variants you could get. And comic books had these ultra collectible rare first editions and every single book relaunched with a new number one issue. And 
it really, really generated a lot of hype and people bought tons and tons of these things, both as speculators and people who appreciated, you know, the upgraded quality of these variant editions. And they would talk about how much worth these things were going to have in the future and they'd stockpile them and buy hundreds of them. And then the industries both crumbled because there was no actual demand and there were so, so many of these things around. Like the ones that are always held out are like X-Men number one and Spider-Man number one, which just sold millions and millions of copies, just absolutely obliterated previous comic book records because people were stockpiling them and speculating. And both of these industries were almost destroyed by this obsession with variant printing because they went so far down this road. And then people lost interest and nobody wanted these things anymore. And you just got to see some similarities. Like I'm not trying to forecast the doom of magic because that feels like a different issue. Like we have a game and the game is important and these things will always have value as game pieces, but there's a lot of variants right now. Like so, so many of them. Yeah, there's, there's, there's too many. I definitely, I, I feel the same as you. Like I was around uh, in, in comics until like the, the late nineties, early two thousands. And my, Sports card stuff basically ended in like the early 90s, right before all the variant stuff started taking off. But I remember that, man. I remember like, oh, you know, like foils came out or like mm-hmm. alternate art type of stuff for the the sports card industry. And b- because like when I got into it, there were like four or five uh, companies that were making sets. And then it, it just kind of like boomed from there. And there were instead of like one set per year, you know, tops would just release like five or something. Yeah. And it's just like all basically the same stuff. And then for comic books. Yeah. I remember like the variant covers and the foil issues, you know, just like the, the premium stuff. And I, I bought into it, not necessarily as a speculator, but as a person who was like, Oh, this is cool. You know, but I was also aware of the fact that, you know, like Spider-Man number one was like thousands of dollars or whatever. And it's just like, oh, okay. You know, like maybe, maybe this will be, worth something at some point. And I, I quickly realized that that was not going to be the case. And when, when I moved away from home the first time and I'm like estranged from my family, as soon as I leave, like I just don't talk to them anymore. Like I, I had to leave light and everything. And one of the things that got left behind was my comic book collection basically. Mm. And at first I was like, yeah, there's probably like thousands of dollars worth of stuff. And it's like, no, like everything was just like, they'd give you pennies per issue. It was toilet paper. So yeah. Yeah, I ended up donating all my comic books a few years ago. Like, I, I checked with a comic book shop, just like, is there anything here? They're like, well, we could give you some amount of money, but it's not substantial. And I was just like, just donate it and let people enjoy them. Uh, because they were all born of that era where there's just complete overproduction. And again, I, I, I feel bad bringing it up in the magic context because I do see some differences here. But there's so many things that track in the same way. Like, you just try and think about new cards that are produced right now, how many different versions of X card are there? And there's so, so many, like just bring up a checklist of all the printings of, I don't know, something stupid, like charming prints. There's regular printing, full art, foil, full art, the pre-release version. There's probably some weirdo like I don't know. Like I know I bought a bunch of foil Lotus fields and I thought I was just getting M20 foils, but there was like a planeswalker pack foil as well. And I I don't know. I I can't even track it anymore. I really can't. So the the good thing with magic though, is that 
I kind of speak from experience in this is like, you don't really quit magic, right? Like even if, if you try or you take a break or whatever, something eventually brings you back. And I think that over time, the amount of people who consider themselves magic players is just going to go up and up. And as long as people are not taking extended breaks and are being current, there's always reason for you to play commander or, you know, play standard once a year or whatever. Then I I think that there's, going to be demand for a, a lot of this stuff. And I don't know, this this tracks more for like commander staples than like standard staples, right? Yeah. But there's just so many commander staples out there and there are a lot of cards that are going to be commander staples with new printings and, and things like that. You know, like the, the older cards only get better with more game pieces, right? Yeah, things like things like doubling season, like there's all there you can't you can't print enough copies really to satiate demand. I mean, I sure if you put it like as a rare in a standard set every three years or something like that'll do it. But there's also a lot of doubling seasons too. So it's tough to keep up. It is, it is. And there's also a bright spot to all this variant printing too, is that if you just want game pieces, you're probably paying less for those game pieces now than you have at most points in magic's history. And with the exception of like stuff you're talking about, like things that are out of print or, you know, just insane demand cards, everything else is much, much, much cheaper at this point. Yeah. So I'm, I'm less worried about it for magic. I do think that the bigger danger to me is that it's annoying rather than like, is going to completely collapse a market. But also, it seems like they're on still an upward trajectory, not a downward one. So it's probably going to get worse before it gets better regardless. But just not being able to recognize things by the art is the thing that upsets me the most. It's a challenge. I mean, that's usually what I rely on when I'm playing games of Magic, just very quick scans of the art. So I I get that. And I, I think that I it just, it kind of, it kind of takes you out of it, right? Like if, if you're in an entrenched like commander player or something and basically like every other card your opponent plays like you have to read you know just it sort of removes you from the aspect of like actually focusing on the game or like chatting with your friends and having fun you know so yeah i i I think that there's a lot of downsides to it well you consume some of the iconic nature of things as well like if is sarah angel one of the most iconic creatures in the history of magic if there were 12 different sarah angels in alpha i'm pretty sure the answer is no it's just like this is the thing this is the one representation of this planeswalker this is it's like i think jace the mind sculptor is a good example of that like jace the mind sculptor still feels very iconic to me it's one of the newer cards that has taken on that iconic status is something like uh i guess like teferi time raveler going to take on that same iconic status no i don't think so and some of it is based in the variant printing some of it is just like a lot of people hate that card, but still like the next big thing is going to have a lot of versions of it. And you wonder if that affects its long-term staying power as part of the zeitgeist of the magic community. Yeah. And part of the problem with that too, is that there's like Teferi Hero of Dominaria and Teferi Time Raveler where their normal art printings do kind of look similar. Look you know? similar. Yeah, that's true. It's, mo- it's mostly just Teferi in the same costume, just chilling there. Uh, yeah. So that's that's kind of weird too. Yeah, the, I, it's it's a weird situation, a weird problem, and 
miles off of where we started this discussion. So I guess I have derailed us far enough at this point, and we can go back to our listing of the fine cards of Amonkhet. So was Anger of the Gods a masterpiece? Who knows? I don't know. Nobody Prove knows. it to me. Tell, tell me it wasn't. I, I'll never believe you. Wrath of God, another card that was a masterpiece and is a slight upgrade to Shadow of the Sky, which we already had. Uh, you cannot regenerate from this, which is cool, but there's also literally no creatures that regenerate on Arena Actual right zero. Yeah. Literal zero. It's <laughs> If you do a search for <laughs> regenerate, it's Wrath of God and Shatterstorm. And nothing that actually regenerates. So that's a weird one. Weird but cool. Cards that were actually in Amonkhet that are kind of bangers and that do affect the format are Soul Scar Mage, Gideon of the Trials, and Our Promise. Our Promise being the big one because we still have Field of the Dead for some reason. Yeah, I think that is a temporary problem. I don't think that's a long term issue we're going to be dealing with. I don't know. Sam Black wrote an article about how. He he liked that field was legal. Right. But I also feel like I saw a tweet or something from Sam today that or maybe it was like the what we would play article over on Star City that was like, just play these cards until you can't play them anymore. So those two goals seem kind of against each other. And I, I guess if you were to ask me, do I want field to be legal right now? I would say yes, because I am playing it and I'm not losing at all. And I'm enjoying my games a lot. So I'm happy it's there, but do I think everyone should have to play against it until the end of time? Almost certainly not. I think they need to get a little bit more creative with better answers. So certainly one of the problems is that Explore was in Jumpstart because Explore adds an absurd amount of consistency to the deck. In theory, you're supposed to be able to do aggro things because this ramp deck is just doing nothing until they have you know seven lands on the battlefield or... Maybe they take a turn off to like cast a, a Languish or Wrath of God or something. But it just doesn't seem like you can really get there faster with a traditional aggro deck. So the aggro decks need to do things like make a giant unblockable flyer or whatever with Thor's deck or combo kill you with goblins and these collected company decks. And it doesn't seem like traditional aggro is playable because the zombies come online too early thanks to all the consistency from the acceleration. And before the numbers of like arboreal grazer would would dramatically shift depending on how quickly you needed to activate field of the dead right and now it's just like just don't even touch that card you don't nope. need to don't need it for one second i've played a bunch against mono red and i'm not sure i've lost yet and it's just because you always always are accelerating you have multiple sweepers that are very good against them and that deals with their first rush and then they can't mount any kind of offense beyond that. And your life gain options is one of your ramp options, which is a pretty insane place to be. Thank you, Uro. Appreciate that. Uh, but more importantly, I think just the sideboard plans are really good too against Mono Red. You just get way smaller and then you have a bunch of fives that pretty much win you the game on the spot with not only Hour of Promise, but I have uh, two Elder Gargaroth, which is just incredible against them. And I think it's better than Thrag Tusk. I do have a Thrag Tusk in my sideboard right now, just because there are situations where I want one more sticky th threat against control and Thrag Tusk is better at that than Gargaroth. But I think if you gave me a choice against Mono Red, I'd be inclined to just play Max Gargaroth because that card is so hard for them to deal with. Yeah, and I, there's also just a lot of good options against them. I mean, if, if you're playing white, you have timely reinforcements, you have Thrag Tusk, like you noted. I, I mean, 
the format has uh, Rampaging Ferocidon, so that kind of stops that stuff a little bit, but not really. I mean, you just get to a point where you're like, oh, I guess I should Aether Gust this before I try yeah. and gain five life, and it's just yeah. not really a big deal. Yeah, Aether Gust, Heartless Act, even Blast Zone, of which I have two copies in my main deck right now because I think it's such a powerful tool for these decks. You have plenty of ways to answer Ferocidon, and it feels like a road bump at this point, it's not going to actually stop your plan. I mean, I do think it is probably the most important card from the mono red side, because if you don't have it, you have legitimately no chance. But with that card, you you do steal some games for sure. Yeah. Uh, Thoughtseize is probably the other biggest card in, in this set where it just enables a lot of different archetypes. So I'm glad that it's there. It, it's a little weird and a little sort of out of place. But it, it does its job. Like if, if you wanted to throw a historic anthologies into Almanket um, Remastered, I'm I'm not mad. It doesn't affect the limited format too terribly much. Uh, it is weird getting past like a rest in peace with different art and just being like, what the hell is this? And like, right. you know, but it is what it is. Yeah, I think Thoughtseize is a really positive addition to the format. When I played the historic open a few weeks ago, my biggest takeaway afterwards was just like, my Lord, does this format need Thoughtseize? Because it was just like, Play your stuff, hope it's good enough, see which side is better. Usually it's the side that went first, and that was the extent of the format. And now it feels like, I mean, Thoughtseize is a weird card where I think in a lot of instances, it's creating the illusion of agency, even where that agency may not completely exist. But that's still a net positive. Like you want to feel like you had influence over the game and making those Thoughtseize decisions, I think are both a interesting mode of interacting with a game of magic and one that, can take away from some of the feel-bads in a format. Well, to, to that point, uh, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but I want to ask you anyway just to illustrate something. Like there, There is a weird sort of agency involved in counterplay against Thoughtseize, so not knowing specifics about your current Field of the Dead deck, I'm going to assume that you have over 30 lands, probably 32, and you talked about being lower to the ground against mono red. And I assume you do this against Thoughtseize too, but like how many lands do you side out against each of those those matchups? I usually don't side out more than one land in any given matchup, just because I think like your deck's engine requires you to just have pieces. Like you you need a critical mass of lands. You can keep six lands explore very happily. There's nothing wrong with that hand. The only time your deck really fails is if you are not leveraging Uro, Explore, Growth Spiral. If you have to play those cards raw, those are the games you lose. If you get to put a land into play, you are completely fine, and you can play off the top of your deck forever because your cards are just out of this world powerful, and eventually your mana base will kill them. So I I think I am hesitant to go low. I bet other people go lower than I do. But for my money, I think it's just too critical to stay at that threshold of around 30 to 32 lands. Okay. So slightly wrong from, from my end. I was going to assume that you'd be like, oh, yeah, I happily board out like two or three lands against Thoughtseize decks and just become like more redundant or threat dense against them. And it's like that is that's a, th- a thing that is actually giving you agency and that is counterplay. And it's not like, oh, I get to interact with this on the stack or anything like that. But like, you do have options available to you to insulate your deck against that card a little bit more. Or say the best decks had four Thoughtseize and you were this kind of like all-in combo deck. It's like, well, you know, play more relevant combo pieces, you know? Yep. 
And so th- there are things like that where I, I, I don't I don't think it's zero. You know, I agree that maybe the illusion of agency is more prevalent than actual agency itself. But there are still things. And I, I don't know, maybe this is part of the illusion, right, is like me tricking myself into thinking that I have agency. Sure. Yeah, that's an interesting question. One interesting point back to that Thoughtseize question is that the best Thoughtseize deck is the mirror. So that also influences my approach a little bit as well, because the mirror, you're super incentivized to make your snowball happen. Like you, you cannot miss a land drop under any circumstances. And not only that, but like Oracle is often, Oracle of Moldaya can often be one of your best cards. So you want to maximize hits for that as well. And it a lot of times just becomes a race to like your Haymaker effect, be it Massacre Worm, uh, some people doing like Crater Hoof Behemoth, Ulamog, whatever it's going to be that comprises your top end. That's really what you're doing. So again, I, I understand the principle of like, I want more meaningful cards, but also I don't, I just want more lands. And if you thought sees me and I have a handful of lands, I can be in a completely fine position. A lot of the times, if like there's an arrow in the graveyard ready to go, that's not really going to affect me. So it's a weird tension. I think your point is very correct, but you're more incentivized with this very, very unique deck to not go as far down that road of altering your build. I would just cut Thoughtseize in the mirror. Is that dumb? I think it's the most important card in the mirror, and I have more cards to... Like, I, I board in the copies, and I put my... I originally had two Thoughtseize's main. When I started seeing more of the mirror, I put a third copy in the main. Taking the Hour of Promise is a big deal. Sure. And there's also a bunch of games... I mean... Going back to the point we're mentioning, it's like you'll see a bunch of hands where it's six lands and an explorer. And it's like, okay, I'm going to take this explorer and let's see what happens off the top. And then there's also a bunch of weird things that come up late where you're trying to really insulate yourself from Massacre Worm if they have it. Uh, and Thoughtseize becomes, it, it turns back on in the late game, which is one of the reasons I think it's quite good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical that it like turns back on in the late game. I, 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 I feel like when things are going well for you, then it is great. But if you are slightly flooded, they thought sees you took your ramp spell and they're accelerating. And then like you draw thoughts, it's like, it doesn't matter. The game's over. You're already too far behind. But if you draw like a counter spell, then, you know, that's still good against our promise. It's maybe good against whatever Trump that they're doing and could potentially be better. But I don't know. Nick, Nick, Nick offered to, uh, play me some some matches heads up in the field mirror i might take them take them up on that because yeah i'd be interested to hear your opinion after jamming it for a little while yeah i mean that's basically what i did until i figured out the the golos mirror when it was in standard and mm-hmm. i like that and I, I got to a point where it was like you know you need exactly this many copies of disdainful stroke this many copies of agent of treachery and blah 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 and i just i figured out a plan that i really liked and right the mirror right now, I don't know, even even the the main decks themselves, right, are just so vastly different from each other. People are doing like Karn things, and you mentioned like Ulamog, Crater Hoof, Masker Worm. Like people are trying lots of different stuff, and they all think that their thing works. But at the end of the day, there's only one best thing. Right. Yeah, still searching for that for sure. Uh, and also, 
like the thoughts he's approached could be very dependent on how I'm allocating those sideboard slots, right? Like if I had other game plans I could shift into, like I'm I'm not cutting good cards in the matchup, that's for sure, to get thought right. seasons in there. Right. So it's like if I'm taking out this many bad cards and, you know, playing these over reactive things like Extinction Event or Languish, then I'm totally fine with it. If there were other better options that I was supposed to be leaning into in my sideboard construction, I would hear that argument as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, the format's also wide open, right? So it's not like you have infinite space to devote to just the mirrors, even though it's probably the most important matchup. Like, you still have to beat a wide variety of other decks, so. Yeah. Anyway, as far as uh, the rest of Amonkhet Remastered, it's it's kind of funny how quickly things change, where the Scarab God sucks, again. Hazret, I think people have mostly found to be pretty poor. Like, Hazret compared to Experimental Frenzy is just not even really close. And then Sphinx's revelation is another card that snuck into the set and people are putting it in some of their, their hour of promise decks. And it's just, it doesn't hold up. None of these cards hold up. Yeah. I got excited about the idea of a band build and you're thinking about it and you're like, well, wrath of God is better than languish. That is true. What I'm not as sure about is whether wrath of God is actually better than extinction event. And I think the answer is no. And once I don't want to play white for the sweeper, then it's really hard to talk myself into, oh, I need Sphinx's Revelation to be my end game in my Field of the Dead deck because like, I'm not playing Hydroid Crisis right now. So if I really needed that effect, you would think I would be playing Hydroid Crisis in my current deck. Right. It's just like you just play Uro and you don't, you don't need much more than that. You don't need to have a purposeful velocity card, I guess, where you're like, you need to restock. You just get to always have that in conjunction with your ramp card. And that's part of the reason why these strategies have become so consistent and so powerful. Okay. So you're you're mostly playing like a hellbent version, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, I play a lot of games off the top of my deck for sure. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean you're you're not even like playing Golos at this point, so it's not nope. like you have the the activate this, get three big spells or anything. So Nope, don't have that. Uh, I'll make sure I post my list over in our Discord so folks there can see it and my requisite mythic picture once I get there because now I'm actually playing a bunch with this deck because I enjoy it and I just don't lose. So I, I was in bronze when we started all of this yeah. nonsense and <laughs> it's just been a, a slow mat, slow march up to mythic, but very close now. And like I said, I think over the couple of days I've been playing this deck, I've only lost two or three times. Uh, really feels like the top thing in the format. I've, I've climbed a little bit just playing here and there. Not sure where I am exactly, but yeah, I, I don't know. I got like 10 days, right? I could I could make a, a little grind effort. Yeah, the, the grind is one of those things where I'm never going to be like, oh, time to grind, I have to do this. But when I get into a zone where I'm just having fun, then I go, okay, I'm close enough where I will set this goal and complete it. But it really just has to be a format that's speaking to me before I commit to actually marching all the way to Mythic. And then once I'm there, I'm like, okay, now I guess I'm priced in to try and be in the top 1,200. And that's how that whole slippery slope starts. But I assume we'll be doing that over the next few days. Yeah. So, I don't know. I feel like playing Feel the Dead right now is relatively akin to smurfing. And I kind of enjoy smurfing. Yeah. I agree with that assessment. So yeah, I could I could beat up on some kids for a few days. That sounds reasonable. 
Yeah, the only matchup I really fear, fear fear at this point is the mirror because I just think my plans against all the other decks are really good. But I do think there's a bunch of other good decks out there. It's just they need to think a little bit more about their field plans. I think they are relying on some pretty narrow approaches and they're just not realistic. Like if one more person cast an Alpine Moon against me, you, you deserve <laughs> to have your wild cards back. I cannot tell you a card that matters less than Alpine Moon. Oh, uh, that's awesome. So yeah, I I wanted to get into like kind of a, a tier list. And it, in case you hadn't picked up on it, uh, S tier is Sultai Field. This this is the only effective like tier one deck in the field. You, you could make the case for Bant or, you know, some more ludicrous four color versions or whatever. But I think Saltai is likely the best. And Thoughtseize is a card that I don't necessarily like in the archetype, but I like it in the format. And decks that were previously good that I would now put in like the tier two, tier three camp are like Goblins, Auras, Mono Blue Tempo. And I think that the reason those decks all falter now is because of Thoughtseize. I agree with you. They've all lost a bunch. They have key pieces that they're often relying on. And I, I also think the presence of Extinction Event in the format has oddly changed things. And maybe just like more Languishes too, like that's a fine card against those decks. But more Sweepers, even Wrath of God, I'll give points to as well. There's there's better ways to deal with all those approaches. Right. And then the decks that I think are actually good, that are competitive, is some version of Collected Company in, in uh, Bolus' Citadel, I think. Yes, the version I like the most uh, was from Rodney Bladell, and he had the Explore package with Wild Growth Walker. So when you get Bolus of Citadel, not only are you gaining life, but you also have the Explore cards to just you know be able to set up future draws. So like basically, it's really difficult to brick once you play Bolus of Citadel. And then the kill condition is Woe Strider and a couple copies of Blood Artists. So eventually you'll kill your opponent but you mostly just put your entire deck on the battlefield. Yeah, I like that approach where your life total matters a lot. I, that makes a ton of sense. What I've seen from these decks is that they don't really have a hard time finding a way to win the game if they have Bolus of Citadel. That's usually enough, and things have to go kind of wrong for them not to be able to get there. The key playing against it is control their Woe Strider. Like That's the card that makes everything hum for them, which, you know... I remember when that card was previewed, I made some kind of obnoxious alarm sound on the podcast because there was something about it that said this could trigger some combo nonsense at some point. I think this is its time. This has been the best application of Woe Strider by far because not only does it set up your combo, but it also just finds you the Citadel that you need in so many scenarios. And then when Citadel's on the battlefield, it keeps your Citadel train running forever. So it's just the perfect card for this archetype. And it also just lets you play like a fair plan B, right? Yep. You just give people the beatdowns. If you get swept, you have some ways to rebuild. A little escape. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that deck a lot. And it's it's interesting to me that like Collected Company, Golgari Citadel is a thing that has just kind of now been found out and is moving its way into other older formats too. Yeah. Yeah, starting to see it in Pioneer. Maybe it can go even deeper than that. Who knows? But I... Prior to the release of Amonkhet, I was playing uh, Jund Citadel, and I, I actually thought it was by far the best deck in the format. It just beat everything in my experience and had these really explosive setups to the point where I was like, why wasn't I just doing this in standard? Because it was so, so <laughs> good. 
And I think the answer to that was like Phyrexian Tower and the cards that were legal in standard that are actually not legal in historic had a lot to do with why this wasn't the best thing to be doing there. But uh, the builds were really strong. Mayhem Devil setups were good. Ramping to Citadel via Tower felt very powerful. And I think these decks have only gotten so much better. They now have turn three Citadel very reliably. And that is challenging to beat on the other side of the battlefield. Yeah, Phyrexian Tower is kind of busted. Good card. Mana acceleration. Nice. That's that's one of the cards where it's like, this is never going to be in, in Pioneer, right? So like, why is it in Historic? There's a few cards like that, that you're not really sure where the goals lie. And, you know, it's funny. I think Historic is succeeding. It seems like it really is capturing a lot of attention at this point, And it seems like people are enjoying it. And I would say if you were just asking me, which is more popular in my social media space, standard or historic, I would say historic right now. It gets way more attention from the people I associate with. Now, I don't know if that's true from a broader standpoint or if that's like the spiky thing to do because we've all had our fillet standard of standard at this point. So we've moved on to historic, Uh, but it does seem like the format's starting to take off. And that brings us back to this question that we haven't been able to escape. What is the relationship of Pioneer and Historic, and can they continue to coexist, especially with a stated goal of bringing Pioneer to the Arena platform? It's such a weird tension between these two formats. Yeah, I mostly agree with you that Historic seems to be dominating the conversation, and I'm also just at a point where it's like, well, what if you just pause on Pioneer and just try and cultivate Historic, you know, to to get to a good spot? And maybe maybe that involves stuff like Phyrexian Tower. I don't know. Regardless, it's it's kind of good the way it is. You know, it's like a little bit more busted than a normal Magic format, but that's interesting. And I I think a lot of what you said is true about you know people just being kind of burned out on standard, and there have been standard things that have been relevant, and that's sort of dying down. And now with a bunch of uh, recent historic prints, the format continues to be interesting. So it, it makes a lot of sense that people will gravitate towards that. Could you foresee a merger at some point in the future? And I think if it does happen, it has to be Pioneer merges into historic because you you can't cancel Pioneer because a bunch of people have already invested in Pioneer and you don't want to burn your player, ba- player base again because you've done that so many times. So if there is a merger, then it has to be an expansion of the pioneer format to encapsulate everything that's in historic. Do you, do you think that's a reasonable approach? I think so. I, I think it's weird because then you have to do the historic anthologies in real life, right? but, but maybe that's fine. The, I don't know, the other thing that's cool. really interesting is what does that do to the price of jumpstart cards? Cause they kind of become critical at that point. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, it's weird. It's a really weird scenario. And I think, Wizards kind of painted themselves into a corner by virtue of success, maybe unintended success that they didn't really see coming, and now has to find some way forward. The clearest way forward to me is that the two formats have to merge at some point. You hold them separate until it makes sense to do so, basically until Historic has filled out to the point where it's encapsulating most of Pioneer, but I think there has to be some plan long-term. All right, here here is the the most likely thing that I think is going to happen. And I could be very, very wrong on this. Uh, I would imagine that Pioneer is supposed to stay the same because it is very clear 
uh, when you say like this, this format is these sets and up, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think you want to say it's these sets and up. We're still calling it Pioneer, but also the historic anthologies are legal and Jumpstart is, you know, that's just nonsense, right? Very confusing. So I think what happens is Pioneer eventually gets to be on Arena and then Historic becomes like the modern or legacy of Arena. Okay. I guess the timing works out for that, where if it takes time, then this is going to stretch over a bunch of years anyway, and then the disparities will be a little bit larger. So... Yeah, I mean, you gotta, I guess. you gotta, you gotta imagine that they're gonna print more anthologies, more jumpstart type things, more, you know, weirdness in the remastered sets, and the card right. pool in historic is gonna get further and further away from pioneer, and then at that point, you can look into doing things like, you know, historic doesn't have Oko band. Maybe that's a bad example, but you know, yeah. stuff like that, where it 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 just is legacy and like this is the the high power format that you get to play on arena. And I think I think I'd be fine with that, but like overall that makes the most sense to me. Sure. I, I guess too if we use our principle that we use here on the podcast when we're trying to understand why something is the way it is, there's one thing that we always urge ourselves and our listeners to think about and that's money. And if you look at the back catalog of magic as basically this limitless thing that you can tap into anytime you want on arena and make a bunch of money without a bunch of production costs and, you know, creating a whole new set out of thin air and all that entails, you just get to go back and say, oh, this set's remastered now. And you put an extra few million dollars into your coffers because a bunch of people buy packs on arena. That seems like a really good plan long term. And you should just go back forever until you're out of magic cards to go back through. Right. And then at that point, you can basically just do whatever you want. I mean, like, it's kind of what they're doing, uh, you know, not recently. Like, this goes back to like Modern Masters or whatever, where it's just like you just start remastering from outside of blocks, right? And just do yep. the, the master sets. And yep. that, that's kind of awkward for Arena, right? Because, like, presumably at some point you own these cards and then you don't want to have the temple thing happen where it's like, well, I already own these in right. 2020 and now I own them in 2021 or whatever. It's like, that doesn't really do anything for me. So well, it's, I don't want to have the temple thing happen, but it's very clear that wizards doesn't care if the temple things happens because that's something they could easily stop and they're just not. So, I mean, I, yeah, I would agree with you. It looks bad, but they've also written off that PR hit already and been like, yeah, this is what we do. And this is the policy. And it would be very easy to put a stop to that. Well, maybe it needs to happen a few more times before the outrage is enough that they're like, okay, it's worth actually expending bandwidth to deal with this. That's possible. Last thing I want to note about historic is just the interaction between Gideon of the trials and pack mitigation. Uh, Michael majors put out a platinum angel deck with that interaction, which I think it, it looks strong. You know, I, I think it, it probably falls short of like beating field of the dead and stuff like that. Um, you said that you ran into a buddy of yours playing Gideon pact in Azorius control. And again, feel the dead problems, but uh, still a powerful combination. One to keep a, keep an eye on. Yeah. Games were really close. I mean, he's a, a very good player, you know, played a few pro tours, my friend, Mark Morrison, but there's definitely a field problem. Like that is a card they just don't line up very well against, but the core of the deck and having access to like those huge tap out turns and not having to worry about it because you have pack negation with Gideon on the battlefield. It was challenging from the field side of things. I needed draws that had like natural field of the dead 
And then I had a pretty good chance. And also he drew his rest in pieces a little late. So like Earl was still a powerful card, but there was a bunch of ways where I could have seen the matchup breaking a different way. And he didn't have really good cards against me. So that tells me if you either rebuild to add really good cards, or you're just saying, well, this is my one weak spot, but I have 15 cards in my sideboard that shut down every other deck in the format. Yep. Then your deck can be in a really, really nice place. So while I won the match, it still was very eye-opening in terms of what the deck was ultimately capable of. Yeah, that makes sense. I might poke around with that and see if I can find something, or maybe it is just missing a key piece, and it's like, oh, it's be so close if I had this, and just pray for that to be in the next anthology or whatever. One of the things I'll note too is that his win condition was Approach of the Second Sun. And I do think that's correct if the format's going to be about Field of the Dead. Like, you don't want to rely on any kind of protecting a Teferi or ultimately attacking for the win. I think you just need some way to skirt that entire game plan. And it probably is Approach of the Second Sun. And in both matches I won, he had a chance for like a raw draw of Approach of the Second Sun off the top to win the game <laughs> and just missed both times. So again, it shows you how close he was with what should be a really bad matchup. I don't know. What about Zenith Flare? Are we there? Like we're we're pretty close to just like having yeah, I, all the cyclers, right? I've seen that. I mean, I think there's a Jeskai control list floating around that is just straight control, sensor, cycling lands, cast out, some other random good cards that you'd just be playing anyway. And then your win condition is just Zenith Flare you a few times. And uh, maybe, maybe that's a cleaner package. But then may- maybe you can't play Gideon Pact or maybe Gideon Pact gets better because your your deck gets so condensed. I don't know. Not sure. But the fact that these are options worth exploring in a format that is defined by a very strong top end is cool. Like it, it shows cool. there's, yeah. a, there's enough power there. Yeah, we, we've just had so many cards dr- dropped into this format that I don't think people have had nearly enough time to explore them. I agree. I agree. And I'm actually really looking forward to the first big event surrounding Historic. We have a Players Tour event coming up, or maybe it's the Invitational that is Historic-based. It'll be real interesting to see what folks come up with for that tournament. Definitely. So homework for everyone. Go watch round three of that SCG. Play some with Alexander's Sultai deck. Stop playing bad decks in Historic. That would be my recommendation for homework. Yeah, that is a good recommendation. All right, what do we have for questions? Question this week comes from Ninja the Nick. Ninja the Nick is a a very avid brewer, always posting fresh lists, very unique lists, and that ties in nicely to this question. Ninja the Nick wants to know, the best feeling I get is winning with a deck of my own creation. I'm also a competitive person, and I'm torn between wanting to win at all costs and win my way. Can you relate, and how do you balance these tensions? I'm going to take this first, Jerry, because I, I think this is something that I really had to deal with over the last, uh, honestly, decade of my quasi-competitive magic career is I was very much in the same boat as Ninja the Nick. I wanted to always win my way and felt that even if I was giving up some edge in terms of deck quality, I could get it back between knowing my plans really well or surprise value and things like that. The conclusion I have come to over the past uh, probably three or four years, really since I've been working with you, is that I tell myself I like to win that way better. The reality is I mostly just like to win. And I think I was using the desire to win a certain way as a method of masking my own insecurities about not always winning. 
like it was the safety blanket I was able to carry with me. Like I didn't play the best deck. So, well, I tried this. It didn't really work out, but that's not a knock on me because at least I'm not just playing the best deck. And this is this doesn't necessarily apply to you, Nick, but this is my personal relationship with this same question is I think I was using it a lot as cover. And over the past two or three years, I've kept my eye on things like what could we possibly do? Um, how can we find edges in the format? But I'm a lot more realistic with how often you're actually going to succeed at that. And I think it's fine to continue to put in the effort and try and find these off the wall takes as long as you are in your back pocket, ready to pick up the best deck in the format. And that's, that's now my thing. Go get your reps in with the best deck, be ready to pick that up at a moment's notice, understand it, be ready to play it. It also helps you when you're building your own deck because you understand how that deck works better. Mess around with your own stuff. If you're honestly not coming up ahead of the field, then you go back to the best deck and you just rely on your play skill. Uh, I can also relate. The, the thing that I will say is the most important, the most vital here for sure is self-awareness. And I I don't know, Nick, you're, you're, you're telling me that the best feeling you get is winning with your own deck, uh, but also that you're torn between wanting to win and wanting to win that way, which leads me to believe that it's not the best feeling that you get, probably. I, I don't know. Like, I, I've... I've been following Nick for uh, a decent amount of time and I've seen probably hundreds of his deck lists and they're all, you know, slightly off the wall, definitely stuff that I wouldn't think of. Like, it's very clear that, that Nick has a, a gift for this. Right. And I think if you want to cultivate a following based on that, and that's like important to you maybe, or, you know, if you want other people to win with your decks, then like keep going down that path. But realistically, you should just pursue whatever it is that makes you happy or gets you the most enjoyment out of the game. And it can be both, right? It can just be like, all right, this big tournament's coming up. I want to win full stop or I'm just messing around on ladder or whatever. And I, I want to see if I can brew or I want to see if I can break it and just do that. I mean, like the, they can change, right? And just be aware of what it is that you're chasing in that moment and just try and do it that way. But I also think that you're at a point that is further along than I was when, when like I was doing similar things where I would always justify it as like, you know, this is the thing that gives me the best chance to win. Like this is the best deck or whatever. And in reality, what I was doing was playing the best deck of, or the best version of the thing that I would enjoy, but never the best deck. Well, I mean, sometimes those things overlapped, right? When like Delver or Cobblade were the best decks, it just also happened to be the deck that I would enjoy playing. So I kind of got a rep for like playing the best deck or whatever, but then it's like you flash forward two years and I'm still on, on my bullshit basically and <laughs> not playing Abzan or whatever. So... I was not super self-aware in that moment and that will just allow you to make better decisions and be happy with your decisions regardless of the outcome. So if you decide that you want to, you know, win with your own creation and that is what matters to you, then you can just forget about winning at all costs. Right. But, you know, like I said, there's, there's a time and a place for both. And I think if you're just cognizant of that and like what you're actually working on and the reasons why, 
then I think that that's going to help you. But I, Nick, I think, I think your default mode is to just brew, you know? And I, I think that that is awesome. But if you want to win in some certain event, you want to qualify or whatever, like just put that away and do, do what Brian did basically just like, you know, start working on the top tier and go from there because with, with your skill set, you're also going to be able to find ways to innovate on the top tier, you know, like it's not, you don't have to give up everything. Right. But I would also try and keep it in line, you know, like don't do weird things with your field of the dead deck because you're you do it because you know that it's right. Yeah. That's a great point. I think one of the best ways to pick up best decks and keep your brewer at on is optimizing sideboards. And I I think it's really underappreciated. And I keep saying, I think that's where a huge portion of my edge against other players of similar skill level to me comes from is that I just have better sideboard plans. And a lot of that is just taking all the stuff I learned from deck building for years and years and building little mini decks every single time I have a sideboard plan and knowing exactly what those plans are and how I seek to win games. And that's something where your skill set will be really well optimized, Nick. The other thing too is like, you note that the best feeling you get is winning with a deck of your own creation. There's some value in moderating emotion spikes. Like you don't need to feel the best feeling. Maybe you just need to feel fewer bad feelings. And if losing gives you the bad feeling, winning with a deck of your own creation gives you the best feeling and doing well gives you a good feeling. Maybe it makes more sense to try and do well on a regular basis and get that good feeling and have fewer bad feelings to deal with. Does that make sense? Like there's, there's an element of self care in not subjecting yourself to the swingiest version of magic possible. (laughs) Yeah. I, I also think that you can take solace and gain happiness from building something that is truly unique and cool and, does a good job at something, even if you like top 16, the tournament or top eight, the tournament, you know, it's like, that's, that's kind of like winning, you know, like you are doing a thing that is unique and that very few other people can do. And if you can create a thing and be successful, like success doesn't necessarily have to be first place, right? Like magic tournaments are bred, like they, they breed losers just straight up. Right. Because one person wins the tournament and 200 to 2000 people walk away as quote unquote losers. And it's, it is not fair to put that pressure on yourself. So it, it's possible that you should just be like tempering your expectations when you play a brew. And I mean, Nick always shares his decks or at least, you know, I, I get that sense from him. Maybe there's some stuff that he keeps in his back pocket or whatever, but like for the most part, it's like if, if Nick has a deck, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen it, you know? So clearly there's like some joy coming from that too. And you could possibly lean into that, but I don't know. One of the things that I used to tell Cedric all the time was that you don't get extra match points for winning with garbage. Yeah, that's a hard lesson to learn because it feels good when you flash that Magus Elemental onto the battlefield. But uh, right, the, the returns are not always there. Granted, I thought that that deck could like potentially break the format. It wasn't like, oh, I just want to win with some BS, you know? But Yeah, I, I was thinking more of when I played it in Legacy about uh, yes. a year ago. And yeah. <laughs> that was probably not the correct call. Right. And it's funny too, because the, the irony was that I was doing the same thing, like that I was, I was criticizing Cedric for, but just in a a different way. Like I have a a very hard lined spiky streak, right? So it's like, I don't care if my deck has Jace the Mind Sculptor in it. it, it, You know, the card is busted, but like, it's a card that I enjoy playing with. 
So I'm always going to play with it, even if it's like the fifth best thing to be doing in the format. So I was, I was also kind of doing the same thing as him. I just didn't realize it. And I think that self-awareness in just asking yourself these questions of like what actually does matter to you the most and going after it is, is you're going to be able to find the answer that way. It's like, we can't necessarily tell you what to do. You just have to figure it out on your own, but there's, there's a lot of ways to go about it. But if you're actually questioning yourself and trying to figure out what you want, you'll find the answer and you won't need us. Yeah. Already taking the first steps. That's what matters. All right. I'm going to go get back into the queues. Maybe I should be (laughs) playing my black red rogues deck as opposed to this field of the dead deck. Speaking of winning with your own creations. No, No, you're not. I'm I'm playing field until we hit mythic and then we can go dumpster hunting with rogues. How many uh, games did you actually play with that rogues deck? Like three. It's fine. It's not bad. It's just like, I'm not going to tell you it's anywhere near the best deck in the format. And I really liked the pun. So I was more than happy to share it. Yeah, I I retweeted for the pun. I thought it was funny. I thought that people would enjoy it. Yeah, there's like optimal draws where you're like, ooh, this is this is something. A little a little Una's Blackguard action, and then there's the suboptimal draws, and you're and, like, I have Tin Street Dodger in my historic right. deck. And the the ooh, look at this like kind of fancy thing, and then you get like turned forward by goblins or whatever. Like that right. that is that's kind of what Nick is chasing, you know, minus the getting turned forward or whatever. It's like, oh, look exactly. at this these fancy things that I'm doing that are very underpowered compared to what everyone else is doing. Yeah, and the best versions of them are usually above power level, right? Like that's what tricks you into these mind states is like, well, I just completely mind twisted my opponent on turn three and goblins can't beat that if they have no cards in hand. And that's true. But how often is that realistically happening? Well, if you only play three games, I mean, it probably feels pretty good, right? Good percentage of the time, yeah. That's game. Good luck.